Isn't that beautiful? I love seeing a lit Christmas tree. Uh, Christmas lights are my favorite of all Christmas decorations. I love Christmas lights, and one of my favorite traditions as a kid and and now with Abby uh, is to go driving around looking at Christmas lights. And, uh, you know, it's Christmas lights, I think, are the thing that sort of redeem this time of year, you know, after daylight saving time, when the next day it's like the world is plunged into utter darkness. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's almost like daylight saving time. It's almost like selling your soul to the devil, you know. It's, it's, it tempts you with this, uh, hey, you want an extra hour of sleep tonight? Oh, that's great. What's the trade-off? Oh, nothing, just complete darkness for four months, right? That's, and it's kind of depressing and gloomy until you start to see those houses light up with Christmas lights. And all of a sudden, that getting dark at 530 is not so bad because you've got all this time to drive around looking at Christmas lights. It's just amazing how lights can totally transform the way you think, the way you feel, the way you look at something. And I think there's a great lesson for us in that as we think about Advent and particularly as we think about this passage from Isaiah chapter 9 that I want us to look at today. Isaiah is prophesying about people who truly are in darkness. I mean, they are really facing some depressing moments, not only in their lives, but in the history of their people. They were in a darkness that seemed hopeless, it seemed inescapable, but Isaiah speaks a word of promise into that hopelessness a promise that the light would shine, that they would again feel joy that their king was coming to rule and to reign. So we've already heard Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, and we're going to put these on the, on the screen, but, but I want us to look at, at verse 1, and really just the first word right now. Isaiah 9, 1 says, Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Now when you see a word like that, it demands you go back. So we have to look back at Isaiah chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles open, Isaiah chapter 8, we see that Assyria is on the march, this evil, wicked empire, and they have Jerusalem in their sights. God is going to use this godless empire, this vicious, violent, ruthless empire to bring His judgment on His wayward people, on Judah and Judah's king Ahaz. And why is God going to do this? Why is God going to so harshly judge them? Well, look at verse 6 of Isaiah 8. Because these people rejected. And there's three things that Judah ends up rejecting. And here in verse 6 we see, they rejected the slowly flowing water of Shiloah and rejoiced with Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now, if you go back into, into Kings and you read the story here, Assyria is coming, and rather than trust in God's provision of this peaceful stream of God's provision, they instead turn to these secular powers, to other kings and nations. And instead of this this slow, steady stream of God's provision, they're going to get a raging flood of violence as Assyria descends upon them. So they rejected God's provision. Secondly, they rejected God's protection. In verses 14 and 15, we read how they rejected the sanctuary of God for a snare and a stumbling block. That's exactly what Assyria becomes for them as, they, as, as, as many of them are captured and led away and, and many people are destroyed. They feared the Assyrians. They were awe in their might when they should have feared the Lord God and been in awe of His might. So they rejected the Lord's protection. And third, they rejected 
God's principles of truth. Look at verses 19 and 20. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. So they exchanged God's word and God's wisdom for basically for pagan superstition. And they were consulting the dead on behalf of the living when they could go directly to the living God for truth. They rejected God's principles, His protection, His provision. And in verses 21 and 22, we see the resulting judgment. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven, scattered, is what that word means, into thick darkness. So it's just that the judgment compounds and it grows. This darkness, this gloom, this distress. And these are themes. I want you to notice these themes here of, of darkness versus light and gloom versus joy. So the judgment that is upon them is this darkness and this gloom. And that brings us back to verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former things, times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Isaiah here is talking about the state of God's people, present, past, and future. Right now, they're in the gloom of a distressed land. They're fearing the impending advance of the Assyrian army. They're suffering the judgment that their sins deserve. It feels hopeless. But Isaiah points to a future that will not be like the former times because in the past, before God humbled the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, and by the way, that's Galilee. That's the Old Testament way of describing the land of Galilee. And whenever these empires from the north, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, whenever they came in to invade Israel, where did they come first? To Galilee. Galilee, many times over the rocky history of Israel, had been humbled. And that word humbled means to make light, to make small, to decrease. They had been made insignificant. They had been made as nothing by all these invading armies over time. But he says, not so in the future. Instead of being humbled, instead of being made small and decreased, he says, God will bring honor to, literally, He will make heavy. That's what that word means. Kavod is the Hebrew word. It means to make heavy. It means to magnify, to give weight to, to glorify. So the land that was made small and insignificant will be made weighty, will be made glorious. The first to succumb to the darkness will be the first to see the light of God's glory. Now it amazes me that the Jews in the first century let this prophecy escape them. Remember how they always gave Jesus a hard time because He was from Nazareth? Nazareth is in Galilee. It's in the land of Zebulun. Right? What good can come from Nazareth, right? And they gave the disciples, they mocked the disciples for being from Galilee. 
a theory of Naphtali, right? They, they thought they were just country bumpkins. But this is in fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus was born, ministered, taught, and did most of His miracles in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali by beginning His ministry in the Galilee of the Gentiles. They were the first to see the light and the glory of God. He did honor that land. Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now, Isaiah speaks here in the past tense as a way to say that, and he does this throughout these verses, he speaks in the past tense as a way to say it's as if this has already happened. It's as good as done. This prophecy is certain. So he, he writes as if it's already a done deal. And the darkness, he says here, when he says the people walking in darkness, it means the dead of night kind of darkness. You know, like 5.36 o'clock these days, right? It's like the kind of darkness you see at midnight. But then when he says they've seen a great light, that Hebrew word for great light pictures the growing light of dawn as it gets bigger and greater and it fills up the sky. And then he repeats this in a, in a reverse pattern. Notice he says, the people walk in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned in the land of darkness. Darkness, light, light, darkness. He's emphasizing this light, this growing, gleaming light that just illuminates everything around you. It's intense. And I want you to notice a progression here in this powerful picture Isaiah is painting. The people are first walking in darkness. But then he says they're living in the land of darkness. And that Hebrew word for living literally means sitting. They go from walking in darkness to sitting in the land of darkness. In other words, they've given up hope. They've settled down. They're at home now in this darkness. That They've said, well, this, is just, this is where we live now, in the land of darkness. There's no hope of escape. And the darkness has also grown more intense. That first word, like I said, it's like the midnight of darkness. But that last darkness, the living in the land of darkness, is the same word used in Psalm 23 when David writes about being in the valley of the shadow of death. So they have settled down and they are living in the darkness of death's shadow. It's consumed them. They feel swallowed by this despairing gloom. And it's in that moment of total despair that the light dawns. And it goes from the glowing light of morning to the blazing sun of midday. In other words, this light will chase away all the shadows. Now, I believe that these first two verses are a prophecy of Jesus' first advent. His first coming that we celebrate in Christmas. He came to Galilee. When His light dawned through His incarnation, through His ministry, through His death and resurrection, we now live in the land of the light of Christ. He came as the light of the world and then He sends us out as lights to the world to make disciples and to spread the news of His coming. But the rest of this passage, 3-7, through seven, I believe is a prophecy of His second advent. And we're still waiting for that to be fulfilled. Isaiah is telling us what Jesus is going to do when He comes again. Not just for us, 
but for the whole world and particularly for the people of Israel and Judah, the two houses of Israel that are suffering this judgment from God as Isaiah is writing this. He's specifically addressing what Jesus will do for Israel when He comes again, but within that promise is a promise for us because we are kingdom people. Basically, God promises to accomplish something unique in both of Jesus' advents. In the first advent, Jesus brought the light of revelation. If you notice at verse 3, He says, You have enlarged the nation. Now think about what Jesus did when He came 2,000 years ago as a light to Galilee of the Gentiles. When He came 2,000 years ago, when He sent us out to make disciples of all nations as lights into the world... He basically said that the Messiah of Israel transcends borders and bloodlines. He didn't just come to be the Messiah to the Jews, but also to the Greeks, to all the nations of the world. The nation of God's chosen people would be enlarged to include Jew and Gentile. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2 when he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, talking about Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In His flesh He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that He might create in Himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. We already heard in John 1, 14, that Jesus is the Word made flesh and He came to reveal the glory of God. He is the light of revelation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. He came to bring the light of the revelation of who God is and what He came to do to all people. But in His second advent, Jesus will bring the joy of peace. And we read that further in verse 3. He says, You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced, they've exulted before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Notice the kind of great joy that God's people will experience. It's like the great joy of a farmer at the harvest or a soldier after a great victory or the joy of a prisoner after being liberated from slavery. And we see this joy comes about because Jesus will bring ultimate peace to the world. And He brings peace in this passage in two ways. One, He brings peace from oppression. Notice there in verse He has shattered the oppressive yoke, rod, and staff, the tools of subjugation. And he says it will be like what God did in the days of Midian. Now, you remember, the Midianites had come to oppress the people of Israel. Again, it's God's judgment on them for their wickedness. And so God raised up a judge, a guy named Gideon, a reluctant judge. And Gideon said, I'm not a warrior, I'm not a general, I don't know how to do this kind of stuff. And they said, oh yeah, you're going to go defeat the Midianites. So he called this army of 10,000 men and God said, no, 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 that's too many. I only need 300. And Gideon and his 300 men, God used, they didn't even have to fire a shot. God used them to completely rout the Midianite army. That is the way he will shatter the oppressive tools of subjugation. But secondly, he also comes to bring us peace from conflict. 
Because just as the tools of oppression will be shattered, he says the weapons of war will be burned. The bloodied garments, the boots that march in battle will be fuel for the fire, he says. But this raises a burning question. Who's going to do all this? Who is this mighty warrior that's going to come in and save the day? This person must truly be a mighty general or king greater than the generals or the king of Assyria, right? Here's the the twist. Isaiah says in verse 6, no, 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 he's going to be a child. For a child is born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Remember how God defeated the Midianites with Gideon and 300 men? God likes to use the small and the weak to overthrow the big and the powerful. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and God chose to save the world through a child. That the Messiah, that Jesus will be born as a child, speaks to his, huma- his humanity. But then he also says a son will be given to us. That points to his divinity. Because what that phrase says is that he will be set down in a position of authority over us. And what kind of son will he be? What will this authority be like? He will rule. He will rule and reign over us. That word for government, it's only used two times in all the Bible, this Hebrew word. It's the word misra. And it's used here to mean government in verse 6. Look at verse 7. It's used there. The dominion will be vast. Now that word Misra is translated government, dominion, rule, but the root of it is where we get the word Israel, Israel. One who wrestles with God, one who contends with God, one who fights and struggles and tries to overcome God, but of course never can because God is the true one who has Misra. God is the one who rules and reigns forever and ever. Isaiah says this newborn king will be the one who has ultimate authority and dominion. And it will be a vast dominion. That's the same Hebrew word used up in verse 3 when it says he enlarged the nation. He says in verse 7, the dominion will be vast. It will be increasing. His rule and reign will grow and grow and be enlarged until he rules everything. And his peace Its prosperity will never end. That's the word shalom. It means peace. It means wholeness will never end. He will reign over Israel and over His kingdom and over all forever and ever. And He goes on to say, He will reign on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and sustain it. How? With justice and righteousness from now on forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. I believe the Lord established His rule and reign and His death and resurrection in His first advent and He will sustain it in the second advent as He comes to sit on His throne and rule over the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. And it is by His justice and righteousness and zeal that this King born and laid in a manger will rule and reign on His throne forever and ever. And you know what? We live 
in between these two advents. The first advent where He came as a child, humble and small, and the second advent when He comes as the mighty warrior to rule and reign and to judge forever and forever. But I want you to know that what Isaiah promises for Israel and for us in the world when He comes again, you and I don't have to wait for those benefits. We can experience them today in our hearts. Maybe you feel like you're living in the land of darkness. Maybe you feel like you're walking and confused. Maybe you're experiencing some gloom and despair in your life. Maybe you feel like that you've given up hope and you're just saying, well, this is, this is where I live now. This is the way things are going to be. I want you to know that it's not hopeless. The light has dawned. Christ has been born. And He wants to come in your heart. He wants His light to dawn in your life. He can bring you hope. He can bring you peace. He can restore joy to you. If you turn from your sin, if you turn from that despair, if you put your hope and trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you can be set free from the oppression to sin. You can experience peace from conflicts in your heart and conflicts you experience with others. That's what Christmas is about. That's what Advent reminds us of. Jesus has come to set us free to give us peace and joy. Do you know Him today? Is Christmas just a holiday? Is it just a, a time for gifts and trees and lights? Or do you truly know what Christmas means in here? Because the Prince of Peace lives in you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come now as we stand to sing. You'll stand. Maybe God is calling you to unite with this church family. Maybe you've made a decision for Christ, but you've never made it public. Maybe God would just have you to come and pray at this altar and give to Him some things that are weighing heavy on your heart. Whatever He is speaking to you, let's not reject His Word. Let's put our hope and trust in it. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time of worship today. Thank You for the beauty that we have celebrated here through all of these uh, decorations and these symbols, but Father, may we not let the meaning of them escape us. Father, this, this service has great impact on how we live our life today and where we spend eternity. So may Your Spirit impress that truth on our hearts and may we respond in Jesus' name.